Introducing the new Starbucks Pistachio Cream Cold Brew. Silky Pistachio Cream Cold Foam tops our bold, smooth cold brew for a delicious twist on a favorite winter flavor. Make today a good day. Order ahead on the Starbucks app. With one of the best savings rates in America, banking with Capital One is the easiest decision in the history of decisions. Even easier than choosing Slash to be in your band. Next up for lead guitar. You're in. Cool. <laughs> yep, even easier than that. And with no fees or minimums on checking and savings accounts, is it even a decision? That's banking reimagined. What's in your wallet? Terms apply. See CapitalOne.com slash bank for details. Capital One and a member FDIC. Hey out there, rock and rollers. Welcome to the 79th edition of the Ugly American Werewolf in London, recorded right here in central London, just off historic Abbey Road. And I got to tell you, folks, we are really excited about this week's show, and I think you should too. Anyone who listens to this show on a regular basis knows that Action Jackson and I, the Wolf, Mac B, are big fans of the pop prog rock group Asia, whose first album, 1982, self-titled Asia, was a huge success, was all over MTV, heat of the moment, was number one on the charts for weeks and weeks, and the album Asia itself was the number one selling album in America in 1982. Now I'm going to say that again. In 1982, Asia was the number one selling album in America. A lot of people don't believe me when I tell them that, just because Pink Floyd's The Wall was the number one selling album in 1980, and Bruce Springsteen's Born in the USA was 1985. Thriller was 83 and 84. But the fact of the matter is they kind of, thanks to MTV and American radio, they kind of caught lightning in a bottle. And, and thanks to John Kalodner, A&R great of Geffen Records and David Geffen, Asia were huge in 1982 and 1983. And it's been our dream to have original Asia members on here. And today that comes to fruition as Jeff Downs, Keyboardist from The Buggles, from Asia, and currently in Yes, is coming on to talk about the upcoming tour. Yes is about to tour on the 50th anniversary of Close to the Edge, a groundbreaking record that really solidified Yes's stature as progressive rock kings. And of course, it's a very heady time when a lot of progressive rock bands were doing some of their best work. Pink Floyd doing Dark Side of the Moon, and Genesis doing Selling England by the Pound. King Crimson with John Wetton doing some great work as well. So we wanted to talk to Jeff about this upcoming tour. But of course, as we're recording this in late May, we just learned of the passing of Yes drummer Alan White, who had been with the band for 50 consecutive years. In fact, he joined the band right at the end of the recording of Close to the Edge. And we knew he'd been ill. He'd had a few different issues over the last few years. They have a friend, Jay Shellen who's been subbing in for him a little bit here these last few years, and he was already teed up to do the Close to the Edge tour here in the UK and Ireland. And there's 10 dates, but we did not know uh, that things were going to turn for Alan. And, of course, we're very sorry uh, that he's gone, and uh, our best wishes go out to his family uh, and bandmates uh, and fans all around the world. So we're going to have an interview here with Jeff about the upcoming tour, and a little bit about Asia, including the new Asia in Asia box set, which is a deluxe edition, very nice, amazingly packaged set that commemorates their night in Budokan. 
Japan, 1983, because Asia did Asia in Asia, an MTV satellite broadcast, the first of its kind. So a really historic moment for cable TV and MTV, not to mention the band. Huge deluxe edition with LPs, CDs, photos, beautiful booklet, little knickknacks and treasures, and a DVD of the concert itself. Really neat time in the history of the band, really in the history of TV. And we're going to talk a little bit about that. We're going to talk more about it next week because we've got another founding member of Asia, Carl Palmer, on to talk a little bit more about that. I know, we've been talking about Asia, we try to work them into every show, and now we're going to have two founding members on the show back-to-back in as many weeks. We're super-duper excited about it. Now, quickly, a little bit of housekeeping. We want you to subscribe and download wherever you get your podcasts, wherever it may be. Apple, Amazon, Spotify, Google Play. Good Pods has been very good to us. Wherever you do it, please subscribe and download. And if you think about it, please give us a positive review so we can help find more fans like you. If you want to tweet us, you can reach out to us, DM us, or tweet us at Ugly underscore Werewolf or at ActionJack72. Not to mention, after the Jeff Downs interview, we're going to review Close to the Edge because it's an amazing work. It's an amazing album. Usually ranked in the top five, if not higher, of greatest prog rock albums of all time. So we're going to talk with Jeff, hear about the new tour, hear a little bit about Asia, and then you're going to hear Jackson's and I take On Close to the Edge after 50 years. So strap in, fans. You know this means a lot to me and Jackson. We're talking to Jeff Downs of Yes, of The Buggles, and of Asia, right here on The Wolf. Hello. Hello, Jeff. How are you? How are you, sir? Very uh, well. Good. I am Mac B. You can call me the Wolf. That is Action Jackson in America, and we just want to welcome you to the Ugly American Werewolf in London podcast. Thank you. Brilliant. Brilliant. And and we're big, big Asia fans. Uh, we're big Yes fans, and and we're we want to jump in. We know your time is short here. Okay. So let's jump in. And unfortunately, Jeff, we, we kind of have to start on a very sad note here. Uh, last week, obviously, uh, everyone got the uh, the news that. Uh, Alan White, longtime drummer of Yes, 50 years uh, yeah. in the band, uh, passed away. And I guess you guys knew he was ill because you'd already had Jay Shellen, who you've worked with before, was going to come in and, and pinch hit during the tour. Of course, we were hoping yeah. he was going to recover and maybe be with you next year. But can you give us a little sense of where you were when you, when you heard this news? Was it a huge shock? And, 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 and kind of what was your relationship with Alan? Well, I, I was, Alan was like a brother to me. We, we were very, very close, um, particularly uh, on the road. You know, we were, uh, <coughs> we always share a, a band car together or whatever. Cool. So it was, um, it was a very tough. I mean, he had been ill for some time, certainly with various issues. He had some problems with his back, and I think that's one of the reasons why why Jay came in a few years ago and started covering some of the some of the the drum tracks, but um, certainly you know because we'd not been in contact. Well, I'd, I'd been in contact with Alan. I spoke to him every week, uh, mm-hmm. but uh, you know he, he he I knew that he he got pretty sick a few weeks ago and uh, uh, and and it deteriorated very quickly, sadly. But uh, it's it's a terrible blow for not not just for me, but for you know his family and for. The whole of uh, the whole of the Yes family is a real, you know. He was like, you know, the mainstay who'd been there nonstop for 50, 50 years. I mean, that's, that's right. an incredible, incredible achievement. And uh, he was a uh, a lovely guy, a great friend, and a fabulous musician. So it's a really 
you know, it's a really, really sad time for us. Is, is, there a, is there a story that you could tell maybe about Alan, one of your favorite, just to kind of pay a little bit tribute to him? Well, yeah, I mean, we, we used to have some fun on the road and uh, well, wherever we were, I'd look to try and find a, an Indian restaurant and Alan would look for an Irish pub. So we, <laughs> we often talked about this whole thing. We were going to write, write a book of the world with all the different Indian restaurants and uh, and all the uh, all the uh, the Irish bars and put it together because uh, as like British you know British guys on the road that's the first thing you, you look for so uh, that was uh, unfortunately the book never came about but I've got, I've got it all up here and uh, uh, he was just a great great guy to be with and very funny and uh, never lost his, um, his 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 British sense of humour even though he, he lived in uh, in Seattle for. Uh, some thirty odd years, so uh, so uh, he had a he had a great great times with him. So well remembered. Oh, that's a book I think we'd all love to uh, to yeah. read. <laughs> so yeah, he he actually joined Yes right after the recording of Close to the Edge about fifty years ago. Bill Bruford did the record, and then yeah. Alan came in in pretty short time to learn all this very difficult music. Now I think it, it really helped launch Yes to a greater audience on both sides of the Atlantic. I think it went platinum on both sides. But I think at the time, you were in school at Leeds. Do you remember hearing the album? And, and what kind of a, a influence was it on you at the time? Well, it was huge because I, I was at music college. I was a student. I was about in my, I think, 19 or 20. And this album came out. Uh, and one of the guys in, uh, in the flat we were, we were living in he said, oh, I've just got this album, it's incredible. And, uh, and he played it non-stop for about three years, you know. Oh, wow. Um, he's probably still playing it today, yeah, probably. <laughs> uh, but uh, no, it was, um, it was a groundbreaking album, and I remember listening to it for the first couple of times, thinking, wow, this is just, these guys are incredible musicians. The production was incredible. The, the sounds that they were using, the interplay between all the musicians was just, uh, you know, it's, it was an incredible achievement. And I think that, most Yes fans, or, or certainly progressive rock fans, will look at Close to the Edge as being almost the, the, the great milestone in progressive music at the time. And I think certainly, you know, if you look at other bands around the same era, like Genesis or Pink Floyd or, uh, or King Crimson, for instance, they, or ELP even, you know, they all had those iconic albums come out, whether it be Selling England by the Pound of Genesis or... Dark Side of the Moon, Pink Floyd. Sure. These, these were the, the pinnacle of their progressive rock of that progressive rock era. And I think Close to the Edge fits in with Yes as, as being that pinnacle of being an iconic album from that period of, uh, of fantastic progressive rock music. Absolutely. Well, on this tour, I know that you guys are doing uh, Close to the Edge in its entirety, but we also get to hear stuff from the new record, The Quest for the first time. The first single off of it, or the big single off of it, is The Ice Bridge, which I know that you co-wrote. And my question is, for so many bands uh, of your, of Yes's ilk, that don't put out new music, you guys are still out there doing it. What, what's the drive to keep going? Well, I think the whole thing is that it's, it's got to be fresh. And I think that uh, it's important to keep that level of uh, interest, not just for the fans, but for yourself. And I think that um, we've always been, certainly since I have came back to the band 12, 11, 12 years ago, mm-hmm. it's been very much a case of, you know, it's always been at the back of our minds, we've got to make, you know, we've got to do new music because otherwise we're just going to stagnate 
play the same old stuff over and over again. So it's really nice to incorporate new material, I think, into the set. I think, as I say, the fans appreciate it. I think that uh, it keeps us uh, motivated and keeps us trying to be, you know, to be creative. And I think that that's the hallmark of uh, uh, of a great band is that, that you can continue to do that sort of thing. And yeah, there are bands that will just go out and they'll play their hits and that's it. Um, but uh, I think I think Yes has always been a very different beast. It's been <laughs> developed uh, even when it went into the 1980s period with uh, 90125 and Owner of the Lonely Heart and all that. So it was a very different kind of Yes at that point. And, uh, sure. uh, and I think that, that Yes has, has had that uh, evolution it always had that evolving style of uh, coming up with different things and different music and breaking boundaries. Well, it's it's definitely always been a musician's band. I mean, you have to have certain chops to even get a tryout, let alone have a long tenure. And uh, the dates are a little fuzzy, but it's possible that you're now the longest consecutively tenured keyboardist in Yes right now. If not, it will be very soon. I want to know, when you play your own stuff, whether it's from the Quest or from Drama, is there a different feel about it? Or when you play maybe something that Rick or Tony or even Patrick did, do you feel like, oh, I've got to get this exactly right? Or it's like, no, I, I've got the leeway to kind of make it my own. Uh, I, think, I think it's a challenge because I think that um, people identify with those sounds and those those parts and uh, the arrangements and everything like that. So I think you've got to retain some some kind of um, faith, you know, keep, keeping faithful to a lot of that stuff. So I, I try and, uh, it, it's very different for me playing, as I say, four, four different keyboard players across the whole span of Yes. Certainly Patrick's the most demanding, I think, because the, the Relayer album is very, very um, intense. And of course, the Tony was much more of a, an earthy kind of player, you know, Hammond organ and right. piano. Rick was much more flourishing on synthesizers and that sort of thing. So it's, uh, it's I find it even just standing aside from it as a, as a musicology aspect. It's a very very interesting to try and get inside the heads of the guys that wrote this stuff and uh, and, and try and be as I say faithful to the parts as much as possible. Outstanding. Obviously, this is the ugly American werewolf in London. So we got the UK connection there. But I'm sitting here in the United States. <laughs> Any chance of bringing this over to the states? Uh, yeah, I think we're planning on bringing it out in the uh, in the fall. So, um, but hopefully, be the same show. I think we're going to Japan in September. Uh, we've got that booked in now. So, um, good. It's going to be. Yeah, we we we're definitely coming in in uh, in uh, in October. I think so. Uh, that'd be uh, something to look forward to. The first, you know, the first time yes in America for over three years. So it'll be be great. Excellent, excellent. Be watching the uh, website for the tour dates. Yeah, please do. Now, people will be excited about it, and you know, some of us, and I will be at Royal Albert Hall on June twenty first. Have been sitting on these tickets for two and a half years, so I can only imagine what it's been like for you all just dying to get out there and do this. But I just want to point out, Jeff, that you have not been resting on your laurels. In the last, what, 18, 16 months, you've put out uh, Downs Braid 4. You've done uh, some brilliant Asia box sets, not only the uh, the Reunion Albums box set, but the beautiful Bootlegs Volume 1 box set. You've uh, I, I visited with Sharon last week, and she hooked me up oh, with this. Oh, there it is. <laughs> there it is, the Asia and Asia box set, which we're going to want to talk a little bit about here. You had your 40th anniversary last August of being 
the first band ever on MTV. You've got the 40th anniversary of Asia this year. Did you realize when you left school and moved to London in the mid-70s, you'd still be so creative and productive all these years later? I don't know. I mean, it's something that I've always wanted to do, and I've always kept, you know, hopefully keep keep going and keep, keep being creative and productive. But uh, it seems that the volume of, of stuff that's been coming out over the last year or two has actually increased tenfold. And, and as you say, the... The, the, we've actually got another Downs Braid uh, album in the uh, in, in, in the offing. Oh, good! Which is coming out later later in the year. We're doing another Yes album at the moment, so wow, things just keep rolling. And, and as you say, some of the retrospective stuff is quite incredible. Uh, I think the the Asia box set is is a spectacular package and uh, beautiful. I'm very very pleased with the way that the BMG have put that together. Well, speaking of new music, we are huge Asia fans here at the Ugly American Werewolf in London. I know that there was there was some talk about the, some songs that John Wetton had worked on before he passed. Any truth to that and any chance those would ever see the light of day? Uh, there are some some ideas. Yeah, I mean, I'm not saying they they were uh, because John John unfortunately got too sick to be able to to, to finish them off. But there's there, there's stuff still there that I still got to get my head around and and uh, you know try and try and make it as John would have liked it. You know I can't I can't just sort of put something out and say well that that sort of something that we wrote. So there, there there are core ideas that you know I would really like to finish off sometime. And uh, I'm not saying there's a whole album there, but there's a group of songs that. I think pretty good, and I think John would be would be very happy to hear them once I once I get my head around it and finish them off. And I know a lot of fans who would be as well. But so to talking about Asia in Asia, when you played the Budokan in December of 1983, that was no mean feat to bounce that off several satellites around the world and, and broadcast it all on on Westwood One. But but what also was not a mean feat was 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 not easy to do. Jeff was you covering. Was it 28 keyboards? You're in the Guinness Book of World Records. The stage is unbelievable, right? You're on a riser above Carl with all those keyboards and about four different microphones because you do most of the backing vocals and you have to cover all these spots. I mean, yeah. you, you had to have that mapped out pretty well. I was pretty fit in those days. I was running around on that riser, yeah. Um, I still think I'm not too bad at the moment, but uh, <laughs> certainly um, I was, uh, you know, it was, it was more... I wouldn't say it was more of a theatrical thing to be able to see all that huge bags of keyboards, but I think that stage with the big A-frame uh, was um, was a spectacular stage, and so I think it it was more to do with the you know the presentation. Uh, although I did actually play all those keyboards, you know they went they went there just for show, right? So um, plus the guitar, of course, and the guitars. I had two guitars and stuff. Yeah, all sorts of things. So two Hammond organs, two of everything, you know, two mini mugs, two Fairlights. Uh, but it was a great, uh, it was a great experience. And for me, you know, the first time in Japan, uh, I think Greg and uh, uh, and Carl had been there before. But uh, for me, it was the first time in Japan. Incredible experience, you know. I think that, um, yeah, as you say, it was a pretty nervy with these the, the, the signal going on three satellites. We had one hour in those days. Satellite time was really, really expensive because there weren't there weren't that many. Now there's thousands of them, you know. Right. So it was going from ground station in, I think, in Africa and then to Australia and and across to America. I mean, it was a technological feat. It was incredible that they managed to pull it off. So yeah, it was. Uh, you know, the, uh, 
It's like when they got, you know, a man on the moon, you know, they, they had a, a little 8, 8K, the, what they call the Eagle or something, had like a, a, an 8 kilobyte computer on it, you know. <laughs> uh, so, you know, those, those cars, I'm not saying that it was, it was a, a, an equally important experience by any stretch, but um, it was certainly, I think technology, I've always been very fascinated in technology, and technology is something that... Um, you know, if we're going back to the boggles, you know, we really, we really stretched everything out. Every every gimmick we could put on every every bit of outboard gear that made a noise, you know, or a synthesizer that made a noise. That's what that's what we we were concentrated on. So, if we're going back to close to the edge, I think that, you know, they were using that sort of theory, that thinking that, uh, you know. All sorts of different sounding guitars that Steve was using, Rick Wakeman was using Mellotrons through delays and all, you know, it was it was a very, very creative period. And I think that, um, you know, I don't think really nowadays you get that 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 level of creativity that, that, uh, that, that musicians really pushed forward in those days. I think that was one of the things that we were talking about. We did an album review of Close to the Edge. And one of the things that we were talking about is it, it's a it's a very proggy progressive album, but it's also it's also very accessible for people who maybe are not are not super prog fans. It's a really nice bridge to of both oh, yeah. accessible oh, yeah. and and over the top musicianship. Yeah, and it's almost like classical music at times. You know, if you listen to the themes on "And You and I," you know, there's these glorious classical themes that come out, uh, uh, and, and, and you know. For me, that that particular song is, is my favourite off the whole album. But uh, I, I, it's almost you wonder how they actually managed to do it. You know, how do they pull it off? Because it, it is uh, an extreme album of, of great proportions. Absolutely, it really is. And I know you've got to go here shortly, Jeff. But we had your buddy Carl Palmer on last week, and he Good. did tell us that you would be touring with Asia in the states. And uh, well, I just have to ask, since this is called Bootlegs Volume 1, uh, <laughs> will there be a Bootlegs Volume 2, and will there be stuff that we haven't heard? Because each of these, you could have, uh, you know, they were released individually at some point, not in a beautiful package like this. Will we hear some, some new live stuff? I think so, yeah. I, I don't see why not. We, we like to record most of the shows, and uh, of course this time we've got a, a, a different vocalist with us, uh, Mark Vanilla, and Billy's stepping out of yes and coming to join us again with that with, with Asia so it's going to be um, you know it's, it's an important to me as a, as a very important band that, that I started with, with Carl of course and uh, and Steve and, and John so it's uh, it's going to be a, a trip down memory lane I think and uh, we'll probably have a few interesting tracks that we also throw in that maybe not specific to Asia but uh, it should be um, it should be a good show we're, we're looking forward to it as are we. Excellent. As are we. And, and I know you've got to go, Jeff, but just let us express that Asia's first two albums mean a lot to us personally. We right. still love them, play them back-to-back to this day. Uh, and so uh, we wish you all the best on this tour with Yes, Close to the Edge 50, uh, and everything you've got going the rest of the year. Great. Thank you very much. Good to, good to speak to you. Thank you. Thank you so much, sir. Excellent. Thank you so much. No problems. All right, guys. Have a good day. All right. Ciao. Well, that wraps up our interview with Jeff Downs of Yes, dream come true for the Wolf and Action Jackson to have Jeff on the show, have him talk about Yes and, of course, Asia. And you've really got to go see them. It's the first time you'll ever get to hear songs from The Quest played live. You'll be able to hear Close to the Edge in its entirety. They did do it once before, but they did it backwards. So if they do it frontwards this time, 
you will be seeing it for the first time. And they're doing 10 dates in the UK and Ireland this June. Technically 11. They've got a pre-tour show uh, at Tavistock coming up on June 13th. Then on the 15th, they're in Glasgow, then Manchester, Nottingham, Liverpool, Royal Albert Hall in London. I will be there on the 21st. York, Birmingham, Newcastle, and then over to Dublin and Cork to round it off on June 29th. Some tickets are still available, so please be sure you do not miss this opportunity to see Yes Live with Jeff, with Steve Howe, with Billy Sherwood, with Jay Shellen, and John Davison on vocals. With that, we're now going to transition into our review of Close to the Edge at 50. You're going to have to cut us a little bit of slack on this because we did record this before we knew Jeff was going to be joining us for an interview. So it's our take on the band, not only not knowing Jeff was going to speak to us, but not knowing that Alan White was no longer with us. Have a listen now. We've talked, we did a yes show early in the game, just kind of a general yes, why we like them, our introduction to them. For you and me, 90125, owner of A Lonely Heart, was our introduction to yes, and was it 1983? Correct. Thanks to MTV and big AOL rock radio, for which owner of A Lonely Heart was perfect, and really a lot of that album was. You heard a lot of it on FM radio in America. But, you know, this is a band, yes, that is a prog kind of experimental band. Yes, they had a couple of hits uh, along the way, but this was really a musician's kind of band where they weren't really going for singles. They weren't going to be number one on the charts. They wanted to push the envelope of what they could do and the soundscapes they could create. And basically they had five Olympian-type musicians in the band at, at any given time throughout their history, you know? Well, that's what I was thinking. Why, why didn't we listen to this record? when we were in college what was it about this thing why didn't we do it and i came to the conclusion that it's a it's an investment like you're going to want to listen to the whole thing start to finish it's 38 minutes which doesn't sound like it's that long but right right it's not a single thing like i'll just listen to the first single and then we'll go to another cd you're going to want to sit there and really get into this thing and a lot of times you don't have 38 minutes or you're like "Mm, that's too long i don't want to do that we weren't ready at that point in time no, and, you know, like you say, there's no hits on it. I mean, part of And You and I was released as a single, and yes, there's stuff that I've heard on there. I've heard it on American Rock Radio, and so, yeah, it's a bit of a hit, but not really. I mean, it wasn't, it was kind of a radio song. Mm. It wasn't like a top-of-the-charts kind of song. And and really, and I was thinking about this, so progressive music really starts in the late 60s with, like, the the Pink Floyds and the Yeses and King Crimson and, and those kinds of bands creating the sound. But I got to say, it's, it's got to be from the Beatles' influence, right? Because if you only listen to the Stones and the Who, you probably wouldn't have gotten to something like close to the edge. Yeah, probably. When, when they went into like the, you know, the, the revolver years, yeah, they can, and they started to do stuff that use different instruments, stuff that couldn't be reproduced on stage. Right. And yeah. I mean, the stones were always, and I was thinking about that too. This is off on a tangent. Who's the, who's the greatest band in the world that ever lived. And you could say it's either the Beatles or the Stones, but for different reasons. Right. Like the Beatles because of the catalog and the Stones because of the longevity. The Stones never did anything different. They were always straight down, blues, rock. And they always played it live. I mean, they've toured for 60 years, right? So it had to be reproducible live. But I I think you're right. I think the Beatles were the first people that said, hey, we we can take what we're doing and expand out and really get crazy. And and Yes was doing that, but 
they could do it all live. Yeah, eventually, yeah. I mean, they were talking about how these songs were not written ahead of time. Some of the themes and some of the pieces were written ahead of time. But then when they got to the studio, AdVision, here in London, then that's when they really started to kind of put them together. And he said, like, it was broken up into, you know, eight bits here and 12 parts here and 16 parts here. So they would record it, and then they would go in, and everything, apparently, was up for debate. Like, every instrument. So your bass, you know, you want that higher, you want that lower, you know. Or Steve Howe's going to come in, no, I want to do this more. In fact, we've got to make this from eight to 12 so I can double it again on the next four bars or whatever. Bill Bruford's like, it was the most painful thing I ever had to do. It was so much more like work than any other recording session I'd ever done. And it prompted him to leave the band. So it's not like, here's a song and I've got an idea and here's how it all flows. John Anderson and Steve Howe wrote most all the music. And then they come in here they knew what they wanted to do. The other people just had to kind of put stuff in as they wanted, and then they would have a debate, and some people are taking a stand and pounding their fist, and some people are like, uh, okay. <laughs> so, so it didn't seem like they're a cohesive band so much as they've got a couple guys with some ideas who are trying to dictate it, and it sounds like there's some clashes during the during the right. record. Yeah, it, it, in, in doing some reading on this, it did really sound like a rough ride, especially for Bruford. And mm-hmm. I mean, it, that's it, it could be a symptom of, you know, you've got everybody else in the band, except, except maybe for Chris Squire, who plays more than one instrument. Mm-hmm. So again, you know, you're you're putting this, okay, yeah, like I want to play the acoustic here. I want to play the electric. You got Rick Wakeman. Oh, I think I can put some, you know, Moog in on this. Right. Even mm-hmm. though apparently it's not really pronounced Moog. According to the uh, to the it, She Will Rock You podcast, yeah, something like that, and they're like, no, it's always been Moog. We're pronouncing it Moog, and they said Moog a couple times in the in the Yes stuff that I was watching. So mm-hmm. we're going with that. Got but it. like, if you're yeah, if you're Bill Bruford and you're not, you didn't write any of this stuff to begin with. Yeah, you're just trying to fill in, and yeah, I'm not trying to hear everybody argue with each other and you know somebody coming in and then taking things away like i thought we already had that done that was right. finished well no now we're going to do something different you know what i don't have time for all this yeah and they said that sometimes the stuff they were doing was so complex and there was so much into it that they would do it all day and then they would leave at night and the next morning they couldn't remember any of it because it was too <laughs> hard like, this is just i don't remember it's too hard so then they had to start recording all of their you know sessions all of their practice sessions the rehearsals so they could pick out the bits they wanted and basically that's how they put the record together and then they figured out how to play it later right it's like we're, it's not like we got a song and we got to figure out how to record it's like we got to figure out this song we'll put it all together with eddie offered who's their engineer on the last record and it's like okay and then we'll figure out how to play it at a later date which they needed to do because they embarked on a huge tour after this like 95 dates and uh and with a new drummer too, Alan White came in for right. Bill, right? So then I guess my question is, is this the end of the classic yes lineup with Bill Bruford? Okay, well, so that's something we should kind of like jump into here, right? All right, yeah. so who is the lead singer on this? Well, it's John Anderson. He's a founding mm-hmm. member of Yes. He was on every mm-hmm. album until Drama in 1980, and then basically on every album until the last 10 or 12 years or something like that. He is the quintessential voice of yes okay so he's on it chris squire is on the bass and he never missed an album he was the only guy who was never out of yes until he died so he he's on it all the way rick wakeman is on keyboard here now tony k had been on the first three albums 
Rick Wakeman had come in for Fragile, which was right before this one. And Fragile was a pretty big hit for them, especially in America, because they had the song Roundabout on it. So mm. Roundabout did well in America. Then they did a huge tour in America and around the world supporting that record, which led to big sales for Close to the Edge. I, mean, I think it went gold in America pretty quickly after being released, but it didn't hit platinum until 1998. So you got like... Five million, uh, 500,000 rather copies being sold within weeks, within a couple of months, and then it took a quarter of a century <laughs> to get the next half a million sold in America because it was all kind of like, oh, well, they're going to have another roundabout. Let's buy it based on that. They bought it up. There yeah. really isn't a big hit single on it anywhere, so I think it, it kind of ceased, although I think the huge tour certainly helped propel sales to some degree. Yeah, so you've got, okay, so you've got those two, and then Bruford on the drums. Bruford on the drums, who had been with them since the beginning, mm -hmm. and Steve Howe on guitar, who I believe came in on the Yes album, the third album. He was not on Yes, he was not on Time of the Word. If he was, okay. uh, if he was, then, then he came in on Time of the Word, but I think he came in on the third album, which is 1970, if I'm not mistaken, the Yes album, Fragile was 71, the last, uh, and the first with Rick Wakeman. So some people would say, that this, uh, after this album, starts the real classic lineup. No, no um, offense to Bill Bruford, who was essential in creating their sound, kind of a founding member, at least from the recording standpoint, went on to play in King Crimson, went on to be in UK, was in Anderson, Bruford, Wakeman, and Howe, obviously, and part of the Union Project, is a member of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. But Alan White, who had played with Terry Reid and was in the Plastic Ono Band and had played with John Lennon, he came in took the gig, and he hasn't left. He hasn't mm -hmm. left since. So it's hard to say that he's not the classic lineup because he's been in the lineup for 50 years. Hasn't been on every single album. The first album he was on was the next one, which is Tales from Topographic Oceans, the big double album with... Yeah, God, that, that's unbelievable. You have to come in, that would be your first album. But that's, that's the way it <laughs> well, worked. Well, the thing... Okay, so, but think about this, though. He... Th that's not... That's the first album he came in for, but he came in for that, for the Close to the Edge tour. Correct, So, yeah. I mean, you, I don't know what... And I was trying to find this. I don't know what the time frame was between for leaving and him coming in but it's like here is a boatload of music for you to learn in the next 20 minutes go and i was watching yes songs mm -hmm. and it looks like he's in there doing it i mean it looks like he's pretty comfortable back there yeah it was yes songs was the 73 live album and live movie that they made uh about yeah. it yeah absolutely and so, but it's, so a lot of people will tell you that that's the classic lineup with alan white okay. on the drums Obviously, John Anderson and Chris Squire. And then you've got Rick Wakeman, who has been in the band five different stints in the band. <laughs> you know, and has had you know, some solo success, certainly over here in the UK, much less so in the US. But he can tour his Rick Wakeman, no problem. And has recently yep. toured with Anderson, Wakeman, and Rabin. Anderson, Rabin, and Wakeman. Yeah, the guests featuring Anderson, Rabin, and Wakeman, mm -hmm. which I think now that's defunct. Too. But but Rick Wakeman is generally seen as the kind of virtuoso. He was in the Straubs. He's quite a he's quite a character. You know, he's got a great personality. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, he did those two albums. He did Fragile 
and Tales from Topographic Oceans, and he's like, okay, that's enough. They're they're getting too out there. Basically, what Bill Bruford said is like they're they're too diatonic, they're too major scale, they're they're too like uh, I want to do something jazzier and more fun. And so Bill Bruford went to King Crimson, where you know he met Robert Fripp, who was also a bit of a taskmaster, it seems, <laughs> and he didn't he didn't last forever in King Crimson. But Rick Wakeman's the same way. He's like, I want to go out and do something else. So then they did Relayer in '74 mm-hmm. with Patrick Moraz. And then Rick Wakeman came back with going for the one and Tormato, as they call it here. And then again, he left again for drama, you know, and, and didn't come back till Union. So, you know, or Anderson Brew for Wakeman and how, however you want to look at it. So the classic lineup, quote unquote, really only made four albums together. Mm. Um, but individually, they were on so many of these records. I mean, whether it was 60% of them or 80% of them, you know, made the huge records, except for, of course, 90125, which is the huge record. And I think it accounts for about half of their record sales overall or something crazy like that. Yeah. To me, I'm always, I'm always biased when you say classic lineup because of that Anderson Bruford Wakeman and how record, what it was like, you know, are you trying to tell me that this is the real band without Chris Squire, you know, making a play for it, which I think they wanted to make that a yes record until Squire said, <laughs> no, if no. I'm not there, you cannot put yes on the front of this. Please yes. cease and desist. That was the very famous yes East and yes West, whereas basically <laughs> yes West was in LA where Trevor Rabin was and Chris Squire. Mm-hmm. Had decamp there, and you know Alan White, and they were just all they got Tony K back in the band, you know, and they were all in L.A. Whereas you know East back in England, you still had Steve Howe who prefers it in England. Bill Bruford's around here, Rick Wakeman's around here. Once they had John Anderson, like this is what the people want, and the Anderson mm-hmm. Bruford Wakeman and Howe record is pretty good. I've got it, and it's actually yeah. a very good. Yes, record. Union was kind of the abortion mm. because it's not. Mm. It was it was five songs by one camp, five songs by another, with John Anderson basically singing on all of them. It wasn't a, a coherent statement. I don't think they even played any of it when they did the Union tour, uh, <laughs> or maybe they played one song off of it. I don't know, but it was it was basically the, the classic Yes. At any rate, we as kids got introduced to Yes by Owner of a Lonely Heart by MTV. Mm by big radio when they came back with big generator eh, it had been four mm. years they kind of missed out on it the union was great from a tour standpoint but from a new music standpoint it wasn't and talk in 94 was just crap it was not i shouldn't say crap i've not given it a real fair listen because nobody cares about that album nobody in <laughs> yesdom really cares about it so so it's nothing so you know that's why eventually you have to go back and and listen to the classic albums and obviously fragile which turned 50 last year, was huge because it mm-hmm. had Roundabout on it and it and had other songs on it too. So you figure, all right, here's the next big one. And at the time, it was not only their biggest selling uh, in the U.S., but it's also highest on the chart, number three, the U.S. Billboard Top 200, which I think is still the highest. I don't know if 90125 got that high. Huh. Interesting, because that record was big. But there was a lot of stuff out in 83, though, buying yeah. for the top of the album charts right i mean um, thriller was always up there but yeah and, and you'd have def leppard come in you would have you know whomever toto come in you know it, <laughs> it, lionel richie come in everyone was in and out of the top five under thriller for a long time in those days yeah the um yeah that was a stacked year 83 we may have to talk about that on a different episode right but yeah uh, 
if you want to start from the beginning on this thing, uh, what was the uh, what was the meeting like when you unveiled the cover for this thing? Who we got on this? Roger Dean. Oh, okay. Ooh, 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 he's coming in today. Yeah. Can't wait to see what he's got. He's got the sheet over it, you know, on the big easel. Okay, right. three, two, one. It's green. Yeah, it's just a gradient from black to green. Yeah, and and I think in reading about this, he's like, I wanted it to look like one of my, you know, very, uh, very important uh, leather bound books. Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> I have many leather bound books. <laughs> yeah, what, but I thought you do like, you know, the 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 uh, the landscape with yeah. the, the trees. What are the elephants the, that can fly yeah, and the you yeah. know, no, no, floating islands? Much, no, no, this no, is no. much more important. Yeah. But you did get the cla- what would be the classic yes logo, so right. that's pretty awesome yeah he did he did fragile and he did you know the earth with the big ship on it and all that but then yes this is the first one to have the official yes logo on it which they've essentially mm-hmm. used ever since they did not use it on 90125 yeah and they i don't think they use roger dean either that was just totally a different yeah design studio so yeah. and talk yeah, this, this had the that yeah. yes that was like i don't know it was like <laughs> <laughs> spray painted or something. I don't know. The whole talk thing just 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 annoys me. What can I tell you? Because on Union, it's it's obviously it's obviously him um, uh-huh. on the on the Union cover and and obviously on Anderson Proof and Wakeman and how right. too. Um, and the so, classic Asia, of course, because we got to work we got to work Asia in here because well, this, that's an easy one though. <laughs> you got to work Asia in every episode, right? So <laughs> so all right, so they they're coming off a big success with not only Roundabout but the big tour. So they go in, they start making these and yeah man the first side the first side is all one big song close to the edge you know now of course they have it broken down as these prog bands always do into four like sub songs or whatever Mm -hmm. um you know one the solid time of change two total mass retained three i'll get up i get up i get down and four seasons of man but it's it's a lot to take in i mean you, you don't just casually listen to uh, this epic you know especially when you've got all five of these guys are like olympian musicians they're all kind of doing their own thing and sometimes they're doing it five four time sometimes i think they're doing it at seven four time no wonder bill bruford quit this is ridiculous <laughs> who can play like this man it, it really sounds at the beginning like they're all just kind of fighting for space it, it's there it's very dense there's a lot going on and it, it you can't the stuff that we usually listen to, especially back in the college days, it was, you know, Highway to Hell. Okay, I got it. Yeah. And here comes his drums. Boom. Boom. This is everything coming at you at once. And you kind of have to filter through. Okay. I can hear what's going on now, but not at the beginning. I don't, I think it was one of these things where maybe you would have been in an altered state, perhaps, especially when you watch the Yes Songs DVD and there's a lot of images going on. I mean, you mm-hmm. you kind of had to just kind of give yourself over to what's happening here and, and just kind of let it wash over you. Yeah, I mean, you got to applaud them for extraordinary musicianship that you don't find in every band, certainly not in every rock band. Uh, but it's also got to be listenable. You know, it's also got to be melodic. And the beginning of Solid Time of Change, it's kind of tough to take, to be honest right. with you. I mean, it, it's kind of this wall of noise. It's the definition of prog, right? It's offbeat. Mm-hmm. It's got all these weird sounds going on, some frantic, bizarre keys to the beginning no of it. Way. And 
no one's keeping time. There's no one that's keeping time on this. You have to play your own part. And if you get lost, you are hosed. That's your problem. There's, there's yeah. Nothing to, yeah. Yeah, exactly. There's no one to fall back on. So yeah, you've basically got everybody playing their own part at the same time. It, it's, it is very, like I said, it's dense and yeah, it, it's not usually, it's not straight ahead rock and roll like we're used to. No, and it's intense. I mean, it, it's focused. And then there's the part at about two minutes where, you know, they're jamming, 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 and then there's a break. Ah, and then they jam, boom, 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 break right back into it. You know, and then 15 seconds again, they do another ah, and, a, and then they boom, 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 boom. And I'm like, God, you know, but at three minutes into it is where it kind of becomes more melodic uh, mm. and more listenable, and it's more like a song. And, and how is kind of leading the way through that with some, very Steve Howe-like guitar, and then four minutes in, the, the vocals start from John Anderson with some sliding bass from yeah. Chris Squire. Is, is he playing fretless on this at all? Because a lot of times it sounds like it might be. If Yeah, if he's sliding around, probably, if only Tony Franklin were here to comment on this, I'm sure he'd know exactly what he was playing and the strings and everything else, but it, that's what it sounds like because it, it's hard to slide around when you're hitting the frets. Uh, mm -hmm. without getting that weird like you get that off sound when your hand runs across it so right. yeah i would think it probably was fretless for him to do that that's what i'm guessing but i don't know and i didn't yeah. really see that in my research anywhere so who knows but he would often have a triple a triple necked instrument one would be a fretted bass <laughs> as usual one might be fretless and then there might be a guitar in the middle Something like that. Okay. Or maybe even some kind of a third bass. I don't know. I mean, like it, tuned it, a different way or something. Maybe, you know, yeah. or, or has different pickups. So it has different harmonics on it or something like that. I'm not sure. But it, I mean, it's a, it, it's just shocking to me that this sold so well out of the gate because this is the first thing you hear. And you, mm -hmm. you after three minutes of this, you're like, whoa, this is now. Some people <laughs> thought, oh man, listen to how far out this is, man. Isn't this cool? But I mean, a lot of people are like, oh, I loved Roundabout. I'll pick up the next one too. And they hear that, like, <laughs> what in the world? And right into man. the trash. Jesus. Yeah. It's bizarre. Okay, so then it grooves into, after about six minutes in, it becomes, quote-unquote, total mass retained. But it's really still part of the first, because, you know, it's, the bass is still there. It, it's melodic, and but you can really start to pick up Chris Squire doing some Chris Squire <laughs> kind of shit in here, you know. I don't know. And the thing is, that they splice in the, the same vocals kind of throughout the different pieces of this puzzle, so it's not really, like, distinct, oh, this is obviously total mass retained, right? Right, yeah. Yeah, that that is the that the, I mean, it's very classical music structure mm -hmm. with these different parts to it. But you're right, there is no solid break. I mean, I'm sure if they, if I'm sure if uh, who wrote this, Anderson and or How mm -hmm. walked you through it, they could tell you, okay, well, here's where we're changing to the next thing. But I, I mean, other than you know him saying, I get up, I get down. Okay, now I understand. I think I understand where I am in this. But yeah, there is a lot of sliding back and forth between it. And there is, there is no real clear delineation between these different parts. No, I had to read the notes to say, okay, well, at 6.04, that's when it becomes yeah. a little mass retain. I'm like, okay, now I, now I see that a little bit, you know. Um, uh, yeah, it, it's, I don't know, the organ leads into from there, get up, get down, because total mass retain is only like a two-minute 
part of this suite, and it's it's a little bit of a break when you get to that part. When to I get I get up, I get down. So you know, there's mm. a bit of a break there with things that Wakeman maybe recorded in a church. I, I, I saw a story how they recorded some stuff in a church, and then they took it back to the studio, and the they threw out the wrong part. The cleaning crew had ended up <laughs> throwing it out, and so then they had there's a break you can still hear in the song from when they had to kind of take the bad part out. But here's the thing: it's 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 very spacey, but it yeah. has some nice harmonies from Chris Squire and Steve Howe along with John Anderson singing lead and those layers kind of have a bit of a Beach Boys feel to it they, they definitely work really well in the in the harmonies and John Anderson's voice is is very distinctive like you know it there is no mistaking him I mean he is the voice of sorry Trevor Horn the voice of yes and will always be yet yeah, yeah. to hear them to hear them do that is it, it sounds really good the other thing that i really like about the when he's talking about the down by the edge round mm-hmm. by the corner they yeah. switch the lyrics up a little bit like you're like well wait a minute it's not because a lot of songs it's the same thing over and over and over again this is just right. a little bit different so if you're hey uh, did he say something different there that's kind of cool because you know down by the river and then it's close to the edge and then close to the river wait a minute what is he doing here switches it up just a little bit keep you on your toes yeah because he lived by battersea the old power station down there in central london so yes which we we've been by on our tour which we closed stop by you know so when he had to go back up to Hampstead to see steve that was a little bit of a trek you know mm-hmm. but anyway i mean yeah and then at the end of that there's this big organ from rick wakeman yeah. big fat organ which which leads us into seasons of man which is very spacey part of this suite. It's <laughs> it's basically what the punks were eventually rebelling against in the mid to late seventies. It's like no one can play this, and nobody really wants to listen to it. I mean, yes, some some beard scratching fellows like, hmm, quite good this, quite good. But if you're seventeen and you don't have a job and you just want to get laid or get drunk, it's like this is not what you're going to listen to, you know. Well, and you're right. You, yes, you want straight ahead. But the, but I I was thinking about we were talking about Simple Minds uh, a couple episodes back, and mm-hmm. they they pretty much admitted that they loved prog rock. They just right. couldn't play it. It exactly. was just, it's impossible. So I think that you know people saying, well, you know, it sucks. I hate it. It sucks. You hate it because you don't like it, or because you know you could never do can't this. do it. It's, it's yeah. so yeah. It's so in. You have to be so good at playing your instrument that it it's insane. And watching them do it live is I don't understand how they even keep track. They have to have some kind of safety net built in. Like you know, if I get lost, I can. I can move over something like that, or I'm watching to just to make sure it doesn't totally come off the rails. Cause it, it is so, it's just so. It's so hard. Yeah. It, it's, it, you have to focus so intently really quick on a sidebar, watching them play it live. Does anybody have more of a Cape game than Rick Wakeman? No, I mean, just on point. Lando Calrissian's got nothing <laughs> on Rick Wakeman. man. Okay. Nothing. Uh, and he actually was on the rock on tours talking about, you know, the capes and everything and, and, and how he has them stored now and, you know, all that kind of stuff and where, where the first one had come from. And in the, I think in the U S you know, he may have gotten it off a of DJ or something like that, but, um, <laughs> you know, it's, it, it adds to his mystique and, and look, right. there is some great just jamming from Rick yes. on this one. There's no doubt about it. If you love keyboard and stuff like that, you're going to totally dig this. And I think there's a, there's a reprise with the organ from Rick for get up, get down. But then it's, it's also very kind of abrupt 
towards the end here, and you've got what is Chris doing? Boom, boom! I mean, it's it's that that bass is not exactly just plucking or slapping the bass. He's sliding boom, 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 yeah. boom, boom, boom. I'm like, God, who else can even play that? You know, I, I don't even know. And, and and Bruford is pretty jazzy in some spots when they let him do that, I guess. But it's that real big bouncing bass from Chris that really stands out on this section of the song. So then it's interesting now that you're you're saying that they recorded it and then worked it backwards. Like, okay, what have we even got? Let's figure out how to play this thing. Yeah. I think I think they had to, you know, especially it's an 18 and a half minute song or something crazy like that. So, yeah, yeah you, you got to learn sections and learn, OK, when do you stop and when do you pick it back up? So and I think there was there was some point where where Wakeman was and this this could have been on. I don't remember if it was this was this record or if he was talking about another one. But he was he's like, yeah, sometimes like I kind of forget. Am I supposed to be on the piano here or on the keyboard or on the mm-hmm. organ? And so, you know, oh, wait a minute. Hold on. I got to turn around and, and grab something else because exactly. I'm the, playing the wrong thing. It's like, well, it's why right do you have the wrong... why do you have 12 keyboards on stage? I'm like, well, we do this one song called Close to the yeah. Edge where I have to use seven of them, you know, and I have to have close by i can't be moving around the stage (laughs) that's crazy but i mean you can hear it's funny because you can hear like birds tweeting and and you know opening doors and windows at the the beginning of it and the other day i was listening to it it was a beautiful london afternoon or morning so i opened my back door and there were birds chirping outside and there's birds chirping through the stereo i'm like oh isn't this great and then it started with all that weird stuff i'm like this will freak the birds out. They'll just fly <laughs> away when they hear this stuff, man. Yeah, they do kind of lead you in at the beginning, like, oh, this is so... And then, whammo, just mm-hmm. a punch to the gut. <laughs> like, okay, when's the good part, you know? Because <laughs> there's two or three minutes that are really tough to take, and then it's 15 minutes of this space out stuff. You know, I, I don't know. You know, it's the kind of thing you would probably hear at, like, the planetarium at midnight or something like that, you know? <laughs> And then the universe formed. Exactly. (laughs) Um, So that's, yeah, that's like 18, 18 half minutes of of that. That's the whole first side of the record. You know they were never going to play the whole thing on the radio unless it's, you know, two in the morning and the DJ's got to go make a long distance phone call or something like that. (laughs) Or just wants to lay on the couch and nurse a hangover. Yeah, you know, it's like, all right, yeah, let me just have a special treat for you guys coming up. We've got... The entire close to the edge. All right, I'm out. Woo-hoo. Yeah, exactly. All right, so that's side A. That's all of side one. Mm-hmm. Get into side B. It's more of the same to start off, right? I mean, and you and I, there's only two songs on the whole second side. Two songs on the second side. The first one, and you and I, also has four subsuites in it with the chord of life, Eclipse, the preacher, the teacher, and the apocalypse, which gets them a little bit closer to Iron Maiden kind of song titles. Right. right. With this one, right? The Court of Life. <laughs> Eclipse. The Apocalypse. <laughs> the Preacher, the Teacher. You know, I can see Iron Maiden making songs out of those. Yeah. Absolutely. They Absolutely. made one this total one, Eclipse. This one at least sounds a lot more like Yes. I agree with you with, there. Yeah, yeah, with Steve playing the acoustic. Okay, I've I, maybe I haven't heard this song before, but it sounds familiar to me. So where the first one was a side A was a little bit more of a shock. Mm-hmm. I think this one. Okay, okay, now I see what we're doing here. Yeah, no, I, absolutely. You know, and look, Anderson and Steve Howe. It, it's so weird to me that they they could have made this and so many other great songs in their tenure together with Yes, but they can't get along now 
John Anderson is perfectly healthy. He could be touring with Yes mm -hmm. more than 12 years ago, maybe 13 or so years ago, 14 maybe. They wanted to do a Yes tour. John Anderson's health was in question. I think he may have even had some kind of cancer, if I'm not mistaken. So they went ahead and toured without him. Then he recovered. It's like, okay, I can sing again. Like, no, that's okay. We, we've got a singer now. It was Benoit David at the time. Now it's a guy named John Davidson. Both of them doing their best John Anderson impersonation, as far as I'm yeah. concerned. And obviously, I don't know how the payments work in Yes. I don't know if older guys get bigger shares and the newer guys get single shares or smaller shares or what the story is. But I know that Steve Howe is in control and he's essentially the reason that John Anderson isn't in the band today. Well, I think that you got two issues there. Number one, yeah, we can just, you're right, probably the older guys get more of a share, but they also probably get more of a say in what's going on. Whereas right. if you're these new guys, you get a paycheck and you're here when I tell you to. And if you have an idea, I don't want to hear it. Thank you. Right. So it's just it's just easier to control. I've, I've got kind of a problem with there's a lot of bands doing this now about how you pick up a guy who s tries to sound a lot like mm -hmm. the person before. I mean, like when Van Halen picked up Sammy Hagar, they went a completely different direction. He didn't right. try and sound like Roth. So, OK, here, we're going to do something new. I know KK uh, Downing is all upset because when they got Richie Faulkner, they were he was like, "So are you trying to say that this guy is me? Like he looks a lot like me. He dresses the same. same. He plays yeah, the same guitar. Through, yeah, right through the same amps. Like, are you trying to pass this off? So I kind of feel like at some point in time, you're just almost turning into your own tribute band. Well, but then the thing is, I mean, that's the thing with Yes is that, like you said just a few minutes ago. John Anderson's voice is so distinct. You can't go in a in a 180 direction, right? You can't do something right. totally different. And Trevor Horn, God bless him. Honestly, I love the Dronema album. Back in the day, I might not have because like, no, that's not John Anderson. And it just right. doesn't sound quite right. But I think the band were jamming on it. And he is doing a very good John Anderson impersonation, if you ask me. He did a very good job. And something like Tempest Fugit or Fugit so good it's it's quintessential yes I'm like so john anderson's not on it so what he missed out he can go sing with vangelis or whatever the hell he was doing at the time you know <laughs> so i'm like no that's good but then yeah i mean they make this change 40 years into the band you have to sound like him you have to sound yeah. like the records do or nobody's gonna come see you so yeah maybe they get somebody from a yes tribute band that guy's mm -hmm. life is fulfilled his lifelong dream is fulfilled and you guys get to continue on as yes but my point of all that was they wrote all this anderson did all the lyrics but steve howe helped him on close to the edge they did all the music together for close to the edge they uh, they did the music together with rick wakeman for the third song siberian cut true and they all except for Rakeman, made the music for uh for and you and i with the exception that Steve Howe did not write any of Eclipse, I guess. And you don't mm. hear much guitar in Eclipse. You hear some, but you don't hear a ton. So yeah. it's 10 minutes of this And You and I, which they did carve into somewhat of a single. But, I don't know, it's just sad that you know they're able to do this. And I heard John Anderson on, you know, Alec Baldwin has a, has a podcast where he basically interviews rock and rollers and rock stars because that's what he wants to do and he had john anderson in there he's like yeah and i came up with an idea and i would go to steve howe with it and and baldwin's like why, why steve howe why him he goes because steve's always game 
And and Steve honestly is like an open channel. I mean, if you look at Steve's discography of every band he's been in, all his solo projects, he's been on like fifty records or something like that, or, or more. Mm. You know, I mean, all he has two great anthologies: solo anthology and a band anthology. That's five discs. That's six hours of music, and those are just kind of like the best pieces of it. So he can create a heck of a lot of music, but I guess he's kind of become some people he just doesn't want to deal with. And at this point, I guess he doesn't have to. That That is one of the perks of being in a band and being famous is, yeah, you get to the point where you just say, yeah, I'm not, I can't, you know how this is going to end. Even though it sounds great in your head, you know, it's just going to end with the hurt feelings and people yeah. walking out of the studio. So I don't, I don't have time or the energy for that. Yeah. But I mean, Court of Life, the first part of Anne, you and I, a little spare in the beginning is very Steve Howe. Mm-hmm. you know acoustic stuff and, and then once the bass kicks in it's big in the mix and they miss it mix up the timing a little bit there's some interesting chord changes i mean it's not like okay we did you this crazy suite now we're going to slow things down it's like well they, they kind of head faked you yeah they slowed it down <laughs> a little bit at the beginning but then they're oh, still changing guess. changing chords yeah. changing keys changing time signatures it's like yeah it's 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 more yes, but it's still crazy prog. Yeah, I wrote down this one's slower but still dense. It's a little easier to groove to. It's a little it's a little more accessible than the first side. Mm-hmm. I totally agree with you there. You know, and so these are a little bit shorter these ones because that was eighteen minutes. Well, this is four pieces in ten minutes instead. So basically, Court of Life fades into Eclipse. Mm-hmm. Um, and you don't hear a lot of, it's only two minutes, the eclipse part. I like it, but you don't hear a lot of Steve Howe on it, I guess. Um, and then it segs into preacher teacher, which again, sounds very yes. And you can hear parts of it. I'm pretty sure we heard this on the radio at some point. I think so. Yeah. In, in going back to it, I I remember looking at the track list thinking, Ooh, I don't, I don't even I don't know any of these things. And then you kind of, Oh, okay. Yeah, you're right. I think I have heard that before, you know, especially when they would do stuff uh, on the radio where they play several songs, you know, mm-hmm. you got three songs in a row for you. So you play the hit and then you get a little bit deeper and okay. I, yes, I've heard this before. Right. So it has a familiarity to it. And it sounds like, mm-hmm. yes, like you say, I mean, it sounds like something yes would do if you'd heard fragile and if you heard time in a word and maybe some of the stuff yeah. that came afterwards like okay yeah that's that's definitely yes but then you know the apocalypse is just like the last 40 seconds i mean it's like why does that even get a name I mean, it doesn't even <laughs> it's, it's just kind of where they wrap things up i'm like is that really the apocalypse guys i don't know <laughs> yeah who knows what yeah what should we call this i got it man the apocalypse all right <laughs> <laughs> write it down. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> Makes well, them happy. Write it down. It's interesting that Bill Bruford's the one that coined the the name close to the edge for the album, and I guess to, for the song too, because like that's how we were operating, man. Like we were <laughs> at each other's throats a little bit, you know. And and he's like a biographer. One of their biographers, it, it was with them at the time. He's like sometimes Bruford and how or even Wakeman would just blow up. Like, you know, they would just freak out and, and have a fit or something like that. And he's like, Bruford and Wakeman were almost seemed like they were caught in the middle because Anderson and Howe had this vision and everyone else had to just kind of fall in line. Like, okay, you've written these songs. I guess we'll 
how about I put this in there? No, 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 don't do that. Do it this way. Um, okay, I guess I'm not a member of the band anymore. I'm just your drummer, or I'm just this extraordinarily talented keyboard player that just has to do what you tell me. I, I don't know. Well, I think that's that's the problem is that to to have a successful band that that has longevity also, you really have to have one or two guys who are in charge, quote mm-hmm. unquote, and then everybody else just kind of follows along. And that's may, probably why they had so many lineup changes because they had guys that would say, I'm not, yeah, this is crap. I'm not doing this. Mm-hmm. You know, I think this is a great idea. I think we should go with this, but you know, I'm being voted out or told no. And yeah, you just get, I don't need this. I'll go play somewhere else. Exactly. And that's essentially what they've all done. I mean, Tony K was fine without yes. And then like, okay, Rick Wakeman's gone. You want to come back with Trevor Rabin? Yeah, sure. Then they have a huge hit. All right, I'm back in. Yeah. You know, it's like, and okay, time to disband. Yes, fine. Yeah, I'll go do something else. You know, you've always got options. But you could always, you can also argue too that if you had that scenario where you had two guys in charge and everybody else was just like, okay, I'll play whatever. Would you have gotten this? Probably not. It, it came out of that that friction and that the people blowing up and and fighting for what they thought should be in the in the deal. Yeah. In the in the final song, it probably would have ended quite differently. Yeah, if you, I mean, if the if whoever your main songwriter or songwriters are, if they're total geniuses, then fine, just do whatever they say, just get on board and and, and act accordingly. But it, it didn't sound like that, and obviously they didn't come in with finished concepts. Not like they came in, okay, the song is done. All you got to do is put your parts on it. Right. These were written in the studio while they played it. Then they would debate it. Then they go back and play more. Then they debate it. You know. So this is how the songs were written. So yeah, everyone should have. I feel like everybody should have songwriting music credits, even if they didn't contribute to the lyrics, they should all get music credits on something like this, just because no one else can play the bass quite like Chris Squire does. No one's doing that thing with Rick Wakeman, you know, so they deserve credit for what they contributed. Right. Yeah. I think if you don't play the instrument, how, how do you know what I can do or what can be done and what can't be done with this thing? Let me, I mean, this is why I'm here. Let me do my thing. And give me some space to fit this in. And if you're going to, if you're going to taskmaster me the whole time, yeah, not interested. Yeah. You know, so then we wrap up the song, the album with the third song on the album, only three songs on the record, (laughs) Siberian Katru. Uh, And Katru means as you wish in Yemeni, dialect of Arabic, although I don't think John Anderson knew that at the time that he just sounded good. Yeah. Just, you know, he just kind of christened it Siberian Katru. This is very jazzy, very proggy, and very yes. This is actually on, they did a 35 years like of classic yes. I think it's a triple album. And it kind okay. of coincided with the tour they did at the time. Because they did like a 35th anniversary tour. And it was with the classic lineup. Alan White on the drums, Chris Squire on the bass, Rick Wakeman on the keys. In his fifth you know, time with the band, Steve Howe. <laughs> On guitar and John Anderson on lead vocals. And they had a killer set um, because they used all these kind of Roger Dean set pieces and blow up things. And it looked really amazing. If you go look at songs for Songus or anything from that tour, it's amazing. They're playing big places. The stage setup's amazing. And they're, they're playing really well. They're all playing very well. They all sound really great. This is almost 20 years ago at this point. Uh, and I think it was a big heyday for the band kind of like okay we're back together we have something to celebrate this kind of longevity we've got the best version of the band back together and let's go out there and play it so that ended up on that 35th anniversary record and it's i don't know it's he's all over it 
Steve Howe. He he's all over this song in so many ways. Yeah, yeah this is this is definitely the most rock of all the tracks on here. Mm-hmm. Easily. And 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 this this really hit more has it, this has the kind of the more of the classic Chris Squire bass. Who's he, he's really more than the other two tracks. He's really driving the bus on this one. No doubt, you know, and and you can hear that. I feel like Rick Wakeman's holding back, even though he co-wrote this with John Anderson and Steve Howe. I feel like he's holding back for a while. And then, you know, he, he does a little harpsichord, I think, yeah. three and a half minutes <laughs> in. Like, okay, well, that's what he was holding back for. He needed to put his harpsichord in there, yeah? I got it, boys. I got it. I'm breaking out the harpsichord. You're going to do what? It works, but it's just, it's definitely, huh, that sounds different. I haven't heard that before on the record. There's more actual, like, solo guitar work, mm-hmm. too, on this one. Definitely. Uh, which we haven't heard before on the first two tracks. Yeah, and he might do. Does he do a little slide solo in there at some point? Uh, which he's not that's afraid what to it do. Sounds like yeah. yeah, and 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 reading and so yeah, that's after Rick does his harpsichord. He does his first solo, and then at the end there's a lot. But apparently, he's changed that a little bit in recent years. Because look, part of the reason we're reviewing this record is not only because it turns fifty this year, but because yes, who were scheduled to do Relayer in its entirety, and that's something Yes has been doing for like the last. I don't know, 15, 14 years, something like that, maybe more. Sometimes they'll take out a record and do it in its entirety, front to back. Sometimes two, and sometimes three, uh, which is kind of crazy. Um, but they've <laughs> they've done it before, and and maybe that was Tales from Tropic from Topographic Oceans was one of them. They didn't do it all, but they did a couple of sides in it, like side one, four, or something like that. Anyway, and so I had tickets to go see Yes at Royal Albert Hall two years ago, to see them do Relayer. Wasn't a huge Relayer fan. Gates of Delirium's pretty good. It's the only Patrick Mraz album out there. But then because they've now had to wait two years, and now it is the 50th anniversary of Close to the Edge, which was a big album for them, let's face it, much bigger than Relayer. Mm-hmm. Um, they've postponed Relayer. I think they're going to do that in Europe next year. But this summer in the UK, and the dates are coming up here soon, they are going to do... Close to the Edge in its entirety. And they've done Close to the Edge in its entirety. So if you're a hardcore Yes fan, you're bummed because you've never seen Relayer in its entirety. You have seen them do this before. But for me, who's only seeing Yes for the second time, and only a second show ever in Royal Albert Hall, I was really glad they made the change. So I'm like, okay, this will mm-hmm. be something I know better. But it's like, but I don't know it that much better because... <laughs> it, it's not like this has roundabout on it, right? It doesn't have a bunch of hits on it that I would know. It's just, I, and you and I is somewhat familiar, and Siberian Katru is familiar is because I had it on that Greatest Hits album. And in, in listening to all of these three tracks, I'm really glad they put Close to the Edge first because mm-hmm. it kind of, I don't think it would have worked in the reverse order. Well, I agree with you there. Well, yeah, he, I mean, maybe, not, well, so you're right. Siberian Katru is more forward rock, right? Straightforward right. rock. Right. But it's nine plus minutes. It's the short one, you know, so you put that first, maybe, I don't know. I I think, but I think if you started with that, if you got to close to the edge, let's, let's say you put that, let's let's say you put Siberian first Uh and then you did close to the edge. You were like, wait a minute, we're this, it it, almost, this one kind of starts weirder and then kind of focuses more into what you're used to. I think going the other way, people would have said, well, I like the beginning, but that second side is just weird. Uh, well, you may be you may be 100% right about that. Yeah, absolutely. But my point about Steve Howe is allegedly he's changed the solo in recent years, and that just shows me the power that Steve Howe has. Because in the past, he's been unwilling to let John Anderson sing something a key lower 
uh, because it'll throw off, you know, what he's doing or it won't sound right or something like that. But it's like, but if I want to change up the solo, that's, that's my prerogative, you know, I'm like, well, that's a little, that's a little two-faced there, Mr. Howe. Yeah. And, and I mean, we were, we were talking about this on an earlier episode also, I'd rather hear him tune it down so that he can, the singer can sing it and not right. have him struggle the whole time. Like, Oh, this is, this is not good. And I don't think it changes it that much. I mean, yes, you can, you can point it out, but I think as far as the concert goes, I'd much rather have it that way. I agree with you, but I mean, I, I do like Siberian country. It, it, it's again, it's long, it's jazzy, but it's got more of that guitar stuff that we like in it. It's got yeah. kind of more of signature. Yes. Stuff. And it's not interminable. You know, it doesn't go on forever. <laughs> so, you know, it, it, it's a nice way to kind of wrap it up. But also at this time during these sessions, they did uh, America, uh, the old Simon and Garfunkel hit which with john anderson's voice is really good now i think it was a b-side and it's it's kind of come out on subsequent you know like deluxe packages and, yeah. and things like that but they do a very good job of it they, they kind of make it their own and, and prog it up some but having john anderson's voice deliver those lyrics and it's something i think that you know they may have played even a little bit at some point so something else that came out of recessions would not have fit with everything else on the record, even if they had time for it, which they did, um, it just it doesn't fit. It doesn't fit the suite of all this other stuff that they're doing on here. It is interesting to see what, hey, you guys can play anything. Like, you, yeah, play something that you like that's not your stuff. Well, we like America from Simon Garfunkel. All right. Really? Well, see how all you do right? that. Yeah, go for it. It's just... I mean, it, it just doesn't seem like it fits, but if that's what you love, then go for it. So then, yeah. So, all right. So then famously, they, they released the record and then Bill Bruford wanted to leave. He's like, I'm sick of this. I don't want to do this anymore. This is just not mm-hmm. fun. But he said, but I'll do the tour, you know, if you need me to, or if you want me to, you know, I'm, I'm happy to do it. And Steve Howe's basically like, no, you already said you don't want to be here. And I, I, with Howe, I'm, I'm kind of with him on that one. You know, even though Bill's a great guy and he's a total pro, you don't want someone on tour, especially for 95 dates, who doesn't really want to be there. You got to let him go. It's it's never, that will never work out. He'll, no. we'll get a week into this and he's going to start complaining and he's going to, it's just, we're going to have to replace him anyway. You're right. Just, Hey, you know, if you don't want to be here, shake hands, best of just luck go. to you. We'll get somebody else in here. Yeah. That, that would have ended badly. I totally agree with you. So they did the right thing and they got Alan White in there and Alan White hasn't left since man. And he's, yeah. Obviously, very talented. You know, he's playing with John Lennon. He he in the seventies used to see him up there at the top all the time of best rock drummers. He'd be up in the top three anyway. You know, seems like all the time. But most all of these guys, whoever was doing anything in Yes, would have been top five or top three at musicianship at their at their individual instrument in the 70s just because of what they played you know yeah right yeah yeah if you weren't you you could you wouldn't be able to keep up you would have just gotten washed over yeah so so to had to pick him up they obviously knew or were fairly confident that he could just slide right in and learn these parts and and not have any problems back there and yes yes shows sounds great so easy for me to say yeah, yeah, I mean, if you if you closed your eyes and listened to, didn't watch the Yes songs, you just listened to it. You mm-hmm. may not even notice that it wasn't the same guy back there. He was super tight, sounded good. The band was fantastic in that set. Absolutely, no, no doubt about it. And look, you're talking about replacing Rock and Roll Hall of Fame members with other Rock and Roll Hall of Fame members, you know. So you're going right. 
from strength to strength here. It sold well, obviously. They did 95 dates, which is really big. The huge in America, doing bigger places, thanks to Roundabout from the previous album. And then it gave them the confidence to say, okay, well then, we can do Tales from Topographic Oceans, which again, <laughs> I think is a double album with four songs on it. And then a right. bunch of sweets, you know, in the middle. But that burnt out... Rick Wakeman, you know, he's like, okay, that's it, I'm going. And then he goes off to do the what the Six Wives of Henry VIII, and he does in the court of King Arthur, you know, journey to the center of the earth. Let them have Patrick Moraz for a bit, and then they all did solo albums. I feel like because they did a solo tour in the mid seventies. Like it wasn't like they did a relay or tour. They also did like the solo albums tour because Steve Howe did yeah. his first one, and John Anderson did so. Like Alan White even made one. I'm fairly certain. So it's like. Chris Squire did Fish Out of Water, so everyone's done a solo album, so then we can do a tour of the solo albums, which is fairly ambitious. <laughs> be interesting if Kiss had tried that in the late 70s. <laughs> I was just thinking like that. What would that have been like? Hmm, that would have been ugly, dude. That would have been so bad. That would not have worked out at all. That would have been so bad. Um, all right, so then they tried it, and like, okay, Patrick Moraz is out. We can bring Rick back. And so that was kind of their haired A-Day with the relayer in the middle from 72 to 78 or 9. That's what a lot of people call the classic yes lineup of White, Squire, Wakeman, Anderson, and Howe. And they made albums, one of which was the double, plus the, the mm-hmm. yes songs or yes shows. So, And that's just what captured people's imaginations. you know. So this is a classic for progsters. I mean, this, I mean, if you look at top prog albums of all time this won't just be top 50 this will be like top five you know for a lot of people yeah yeah because because i think it's it's long and it's weird but it's still accessible like the like the topographic ocean that's just on a whole nother that's a lot to take it yeah Yeah. (laughs) it really is right i I thought it was interesting too that i think the tour for this started in dallas texas Mm -hmm. and i thought to myself I wouldn't have bet that the big hotspot for prog music in 1972 or 73, whenever they started this tour would have been Dallas, Texas, but okay, cool. Let's yeah, do it. They were just, they were just rock back then. It's just, it's yeah. just rock. And you know, whoever's going to open for them or tour with them, you know, we'll just package it together. Yeah. So, I mean, but you'll see it Rolling Stone top 500 albums of all time, 500 albums you must hear before you die. I mean, it, it's on all sorts of lists and I, I don't know, I, I think the band were at their best as far as they've all been recording long enough now. They're not kids who are green anymore. They're not jaded and rich or, you know, been through the ringer enough. They're still kind of on that upswing mm-hmm. um, professionally um, as individuals and as a band. And so this may have captured them at their very best, although there's stuff that they did later that I might like better or that just sounds better to my ears. This could be their best. A lot of critics seem to think so. Yeah, and I, th- I think you're right. It's, you know, uh, who was it? Howie Long was talking one time about the elevators. You know, like when you get to the NFL, your IQ, your football IQ is low, but your physical ability is high. And then right. as you go, and this is kind of the same thing. Like they they had been making records long enough where they were, they gotten really good at composing music, right. but yet they hadn't quite yet decided to kill each other so it, this helped but yeah i think you're right i think this might be the the i don't want to say lightning in a bottle because they they went on to do so much other stuff but mm-hmm. i think this is the album that if you if you're not a huge prog rock fan you can listen to this and you can accept you can accept it 
Mm-hmm. And if you are a huge prog rock fan, you can say, well, yeah, I mean, this is, it's not, it could be progier, but I like it because it's still really good and, and is a good representation of the style of music. I think that's a great way to put it. Yeah, absolutely. Right. Because it's not super spaced out like Frank Zappa. I can't even listen. I don't even know what he's saying. You know, it doesn't make right. any sense kind of thing, but it's definitely not pop and like, oh yeah, it's about going to the malt shop and holding hands and driving a car. You know, it's, it's not about that. So right. Yeah, it could be a lot of different things to a lot of different people. But I mean, I just think that like at this point, they're all firing all the cylinders individually. They know how to stick up for themselves. They know how to, and they're still in their early 20s, but you know, mm-hmm. the, they're forging their way as men and not just kids. And, you know, they've had a taste of success and they want more and they can stand up for this is why, this is what we need. And I don't want to hear that and that kind of thing. So I, I don't know. It's It was an interesting listen. It was interesting doing research on it, to be honest with you. Yeah. And and it's interesting, too, because it, we, we talked about this on our earlier Yes episode, where if you started it from 90125, which we did, this which is did. the same band. Yes, correct. Yeah. But it's not. Th- this is more of the, if you were a Yes fan, you thought that record was like, the, you'd sold out. This is really more of the, the golden age of Yes. So it was really interesting to go back and listen to this. For me, really the first time that I really got my hands around this to hear, you know, them at their, I guess at their proggy height. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I mean, it, it definitely is. It's them at their proggy height. They, they intentionally did things a little shorter once they got to like going for the one and, and Tormato yeah. and, and drama, although these had still had some longer songs on there. They intentionally did it. By 1983, things had completely changed. MTV had come in and changed everything. And 902, hell, I mean, Trevor Rabin had sat on in on the Asia session. So he might've taken a few ideas with him back to Steve Howe's old band and Jeff Downs old band, but they had a huge success. If you thought the first Asia album did well, it did nothing next to 90125, <laughs> you know, <laughs> which is the dichotomy. I'm like, you say, yes, this is the classic band on these, but they didn't sell that well. This one eventually went platinum, but did going for the one, you know, go double platinum in the US? I don't think it did. Did Tales from Topographic Oceans? Well, it's a double album, so it kind of gets judged a little bit differently. And then the one where they went pop and had new members of the band in there and retreaded some old members of the band, that's the one that sells 15 million copies or whatever the heck it was. And Rick Wakeman, to his credit, says that was the album, even though he did not play on it and had not been in Yes for about five years when it came out. He's like, that's the band that's that's the record that's allowed the band to go on to this day, even though they don't play mm-hmm. a ton of that off of it anymore because, of course, Steve Howe wasn't in the band then. So he doesn't <laughs> care for that era of the band that much. That's just the way it is. Yeah. When you hold the cards, that's the way it is. But you're right. I think that had that record not come out in 83, if they had made another one, that was less commercially successful. You're right. We we probably never would have gotten a taste of it until much later. Right. Because suddenly it's, it, it, it's not quite, yes, it's not the same. There's no Steve Howe. Steve Howe had this huge success with Asia short lived, mm-hmm. but it was huge. Then they'd say, okay, we'll see. Steve Howe was the talent because he left and did the big thing. And yes, without him kind of crumpled up. Right. Because yeah. once he joined the band, he was all the way through drama and the 90125 was just kind of the one off. It's like, oh, all right, well, because they try interestingly enough, Squire and White tried recording with Jimmy Page for a while mm-hmm. during that time. It's called XYZ, right? X yes, X Zeppelin. XYZ. 
And Jimmy was in just no condition, man. I mean, <laughs> if you look at him from the Arms concerts, and that was like 83. This is a few years after Bonham died. He was still in rough shape. He was very skinny. He didn't look good. It looked like he hadn't, hadn't been that long since he had the needle, you know. And so... <laughs> If they were trying, okay, yes is over. At least it was taking a break. John Anderson said, no, I'm, I'm going to go do something else. Steve Howe goes and does something else. It's so like, okay, well, what are we going to do? All right, well, Jimmy's free. Maybe we try that. I would have loved to have seen what would have come out of it, but I just don't think Jimmy was in any condition, unfortunately. Right. Yeah, I, I would agree with you. He he was not in fight and shape at that point in time. And you even saw that in the Live Aid stuff. I mean, when you go go back and look at it, you can see, Ooh, he is definitely, I mean, he's there and he's playing. He's not where he once was and then would be again. And that's five years on, man. That's, right. that's not like it's three weeks after bond. That's five years, you know? Yeah. I would have liked to have seen what they could have done. Had he been in decent shape? I would have, yeah. but, but I know I'm not alone, you know? So, you know, so in the U I mean, this is one of those things we talk about who makes it big in the U S and who makes it big in the UK. This was top five top. It was number three in America is number four in the UK. It went platinum on both sides of the Atlantic. And I don't know, except for 90125, if any of the rest of them did. I mean, I think most all of them from the 70s went gold in America. Mm-hmm. But for the most part, the platinum thing was was a little tough for them to come f- to come by. Tormato, I guess, eventually went platinum. Uh, in America. And I love drama, but like I said, I knew it wasn't going to do well because you changed the personnel, you changed the singer, and that always mm. freaks people out. Yeah, then then it's not even the, for, yes, for most of the listening audience it's not even the same thing anymore. So it's it's the band and name only. And I wonder too, had they not yeah, then that's an interesting thing too. I wonder had they not gotten Anderson back in 83, would that have been a, like if Trevor Horn had, because I mean he he slid back and produced it. He was still there. Had he done the vocals, would it have done as well? I don't know. Another fair question. I think at the end of the day, Trevor Horn kind of realized that being out front, as good a singer or maybe songwriter as he may have been, that's not who he is. That's not the life that he wanted. You, you kind of mm. have to really want to be a lead singer you know, and, yeah. and, and be out there and get that attention and, and have to do the interviews and, and everything else. Yeah, I mean, triple platinum 90125 went in the U.S., and I bet it I bet it has done better than that over the years. I mean, it, tens of millions in sales, so it's like, it's the one that everyone knows a little bit about. But this one, Close to the Edge, got great, I don't know, it got great reviews, great compliments by other bands, got great compliments by the critics. Um, and I think that's part of why it's, of its longevity, too, because they look back, well, where did Jess really hit it? Well, it was on close to the edge more so than mm-hmm. fragile which had a couple of hits you know more so than the 90125 which is too pop for anybody pop. Yeah. yeah exactly like that was it that's the high watermark but they really kind of define who they were what their sound was absolutely and and i think it's one of those records that like i said we i'm glad that we did this later in life <laughs> yeah because it, i ju- we i just couldn't i just couldn't do it back then i was not in the i was not in the the minds the mind space to accept this it's it's too much at that it would have been too much at that point in time and but it's something that i think if you can get your hands around it it's really good i mean even even on it so forget about everything else and you know the people that they influenced and came sure. just listen to this record it's, it's got a lot of stuff on it and these guys are playing 
the absolute hell out of their instruments. Yeah, uh, unbelievable. Yeah, it's like a marathon too. I, I take my hat off to teenagers who got this back in the day. Now, I, I would I would guess that you're you're smoking something or you're on something if you're really really into this back in the day. Not necessarily, I know, but but it just seemed like God with all that stuff going on, that's what it's about, right? It, it, it's like you don't really like EDM. You just like taking Molly and hopping around, and then and then and then the EDM makes sense, right? Like, do you? really like some of this stuff or it's just your way stone it sounds so cool I, I don't know but as an older person where i can pick this stuff out and the bass makes more sense to me i can hear what it's doing and what a special bass player chris squire was and yeah. is it, it's something i had to be older before i could appreciate it but but you mentioned frank zappa before and and i've i've tried my level best to listen to frank zappa that music is almost like, okay, how weird can we make this? Exactly. How, how off can it be? You know, you can do whatever you want. You can use, this is, this is, they change up the time signatures a lot. They play a lot of stuff at the same time, but right. it all fits together. It, it, yeah. This is, it's not esoteric for esoteric's sake. Whereas Zappa kind of is. It's like, look, that's, look at how strange I can be. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Whereas, yes, yes, they're stretching themselves. They're trying different odd weird things but right. no it, it all it all does make sense and in genesis they tried some odd weird things but it was also it was always more melodic to me and always had a decent pace to it even if they shifted the time a little bit some of this stuff is really jumping around a bit and like you've mm. got to i mean you almost can't tell the players without a program you almost have to like <laughs> okay now where are we now Let's see where yeah. i am you know yeah that's and that's what we were talking that's what i was talking about before when it's at the beginning like if you it, you have to listen to this a couple of times and just say, okay, I, I, maybe I don't have to keep up the first couple of times. Then you can start to pick things out. Okay. I see what, you know, so-and-so is playing here. I hear this part. Cause at the beginning, it's just, it's too much. It just kind of overloads your brain to pick it apart. Totally agree, man. And usually when we do these reviews, I'll listen to something twice. I'll listen to it like for fun, like while mm -hmm. I'm making dinner and maybe I'll jot down a couple of notes or something like that. And then I'll go back later and say, okay, uh, all right, now this is why I like this part. Or I heard this in here. Let me listen to this and I'll, I'll make my notes on it. I had to listen to this four times because the first time I was like, whoa, this is so out there, man. I, and, and, <laughs> And I can't listen to it with the girls because they're like, what the hell is this? You know, uh, <laughs> is this it's, the same song? Yeah. Too much going on. You know, it's, it's, yeah. it, it sounds like noise to the uninitiated, you know? So I'm like, all right. So it, it took me a while to kind of lock in. It's like exactly what's going on here, you know? So, cause it, I've listened to it casually, like it's on in the background, but I'm doing other things. To really sit and intently listen to it is a different sport altogether. It, to really pick up on all the different stuff that's going on in there and the changes. Right. Whew, it, I mean, to listen to it isn't easy. To write it is impossible. I don't see how they did it. Yeah, and, and, and maybe, they, maybe they didn't. That was the thing. Maybe they didn't actually write this. It just came out of mm -hmm. getting a groove and playing it and recording it and saying, that's the one I like. Okay. Right. Write the music down from there. Yeah, exactly. Well, I hope here's the thing. I, I'm excited to see. Yes. On what is a relatively big stage. Like I said, world art hall is about 5,200, which either makes it an enormous theater or a small arena. And I saw them in a theater, a very nice theater, but I was in the upper deck and it was close to the end of, 
Chris Squire's life. It was Steve Howe, Alan White, Chris Squire. Rick Wakeman, I think, was supposed to be with him, but he had some kind of health thing. So he sent his son Oliver to play with them. Uh, and okay. I gotta tell you, Not Oliver was pretty good. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Oliver's pretty damn good. So I'm like, okay. I mean, I, I wanted to see Rick Wakeman, obviously, but being able to see Oliver is not bad. And I think that was Benoit David at the time singing the songs. I also seem to recall they did Owner of a Lonely Heart, but Steve didn't play it that well. And I'm I, that was me first mm. understanding Steve doesn't want to play the stuff that he wasn't on. He doesn't like <laughs> anything that he wasn't on. I mean, you know, is there anything from time in a word they played maybe not because he wasn't on it you know the or the first album you know in a word yeah. yes no he doesn't because he wasn't on it they don't play that so when he's in charge of the band he can dictate what they play like well we got to play owner of a lonely heart he's like well okay i guess i'll play it but he, he <laughs> yeah. didn't play it that well i'm like if trevor horn was there he would have played it right so right but now you can't see awh anymore because they've disbanded they're like okay that's enough of that plus trevor horn's busy he's a He's a big time movie score guy, you know, so, yeah. and Wakeman can do whatever he wants. He does this thing called grumpy old Christmas or <laughs> that he does, you know, in November and December around the country here. And I think it's supposed to be really good. If COVID was kind of relieved this year, I was going to maybe think about getting some tickets, but I don't know about that, but I, I'll be curious. I'm just glad they will be able to see it on a big stage, probably with some cool, because looking down from the balcony with no stage projections is one thing. I think looking up from a good seat and they will have something behind them. I'm hoping yeah, some kind of... That'll which, add to it a lot. Yeah, I think so. So that's... And, and just to hear done... Plus, I'm sure I'll, I'll be with people who've been listening to this for 50 years, you know, and can yeah. really critique it, you know? <laughs> You're going to see some crusty people come out of the woodwork for this. No doubt. No doubt. June 21st, 2022 at Royal Albert Hall. All right. Looking forward to it. And so, yeah, because I have three other concerts around that time, we may just have to do a quick summary brief on the concert and add it to the end of this. Who knows? Yeah, we could do that. That would would be good because I would be interested to see now that we've talked about this for an hour and change. How it how it holds up live? How it comes off live? Yeah, interested. Yeah, yeah. You know, now at this point, honestly, there's only one member of the band who played on that record, who's playing that night. Right? It's just Steve Howe because John Anderson is persona non grata. Chris Squire is dead, uh, and Billy Sherwood is is filling in for him. Jeff Downs is now the keyboardist. Yes, which we love because we love Asia and the Buggles and everything. But correct. um, and, And Alan White. Well, this is right before he joined the band. He's been in the band 50 years, but this isn't an album he played on, you know? So he played on the tour. But right, so you kind of give, give him like a credit Maybe I give him a pass, all right, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Two of the original members, kind of. Mm-hmm. I, I, somebody told me that they opened for Cream in their farewell concert at Royal Albert Hall. So wow. Okay. Four years later or whatever, I'm going to see them play there again. That's crazy. I know. Well, that wraps a very special and very long episode 79 of The Ugly American Werewolf in London. Thanks so much to Jeff Downs for joining us here to talk about this tour, the passing of Alan White, what he meant to him as a friend and as a musician, the upcoming tour on Close to the Edge, celebrating the 50th anniversary of that groundbreaking album, and just talking about Asia generally, because fans know we love Asia. Very special thanks to Sharon at Publicity Connection for putting us together after all this time. 
Also know that the Asia in Asia box set comes out on June 10th. The big Asia fans are going to want to pick that up, trust me. And the show out next week, show number 80, will feature Carl Palmer of Asia. We're going to talk a lot more, not only about Asia, but the Asia and Asia box set. So we're going to wrap it up here, folks. I know this is longer than usual, but as usual, did we get something right? Did we get something wrong? Did we miss the point? Did we leave out your favorite part? Please let us know. Tweet or DM us at Ugly underscore Werewolf or at ActionJack72. And download and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Special show. We really appreciate you being a part of it. I think next week's is going to be special for you Asia fans as well. So until next time, all you rock and rollers all around the world, be cool and stay safe. With one of the best savings rates in America, banking with Capital One is the easiest decision in the history of decisions. Even easier than choosing Slash to be in your band. Next up for lead guitar. You're in. Cool. (laughs) Yep, even easier than that. And with no fees or minimums on checking and savings accounts, is it even a decision? That's banking reimagined. What's in your wallet? Terms apply. See CapitalOne.com slash bank for details. Capital One and a member FDIC. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.